You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. We're going to dive into the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 5. Before I, before I do that, I just want to encourage, this is just something I sense during worship. Uh, if, you're, if you feel like this morning you're, you're walking through the valley, I, w- I want to encourage you. If you feel like you're walking through a season that's like a low, you know, we always long for the, the mountaintop experiences, but we are not designed or the Lord has not destined us to live always on the mountaintop. He's, he leads us into the valley. He leads us into these places that where maybe the Lord feels more distant even though he's not, or it just doesn't feel as thrilling or as exciting, and that's the valley. But as we were worshiping, I just had these pictures, these images from years ago when I was in Rwanda, Africa. I spent a summer there drilling water wells. And at the time, we were working with the government in Rwanda. We didn't have great knowledge of the geology as we were working in these villages trying to provide clean water. And so we, we had to kind of gauge where the best place to put, to put a well would be simply by the topography above, above the ground, uh, which is very hard to do to know where the water table is and uh, where, the, where, the, where the water is running. But as a rule of thumb, the valleys were better to drill in than the mountains, than the hills. And there was one miraculous moment at an orphanage on top of a hill that we drilled at the top of a hill and we hit water. It's the Lord's provision. But in general, the valley is actually the place closer to the spring, closer to the water table. It's the place where, where, where the water is most easily accessible. And that kind of hit me during worship that there is this breakthrough that happens walking through the valley. The, the springs of the Lord are accessible there that I believe aren't even as accessible at the mountaintop. There is something special for you in that valley. So I just want to encourage you in that. So kind of the picture that came to me was Isaiah 43, kind of the paradox of following the Lord. Remember not the former things, nor nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. So I'm speaking this to you that are walking through the valley. The Lord is doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So it looks like a, a season of difficulty and a season of, you know, a low moment, even a, like a wilderness season. It's there the Lord wants to provide a breakthrough that draws your heart closer to him, that, that reveals him in a greater way as redeemer, as Lord in tangible reality. And so I speak that upon you. So if you're here this morning and you're walking through the valley, I just want you to receive from the Lord right now. I'm going to pray. Lord, I pray you'd encourage every heart in the house this morning that feels like they're walking through the valley, feels like they're walking through the wilderness. They're asking, what did I do to get here? What did I do to deserve this? What happened, Lord? Where are you, God? Have you forsaken me? Well, this morning you have interrupted their life to, to speak a message to their hearts intimately. It's in that place the springs of living water are going to burst forth into their life, not necessarily to deliver them instantly to the mountaintop, but to encounter you in an intimate reality for them, for themselves, because you love them so dearly. So Lord, minister to hearts this morning. Through that, that word, through Isaiah 43, that you're doing a new thing, we need to perceive it. But also as we, as we dive into First Peter, I pray you minister to hearts. The strength of Jesus to meet us where we're at, to, to encounter us personally, individually, not just corporately, in your mighty name, amen. The Lord is good. 
I want to speak to you this morning. I just want to minister God's word, 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to share about the strength of Jesus, the power of Jesus. That's where Peter, as we've been in this book now for, for, for weeks, um, that's where Peter ends, is by highlighting and really leaving with the believers this strong testimony, this strong exhortation about the strength of Jesus. His strength is otherworldly. His strength is not like the strength of this world. And I want us to see Jesus rightly this morning. And I think that was Peter's heart as he left these final words with the believers 2,000 years ago. And these words that given to us by Holy Spirit are still as relevant to today. It's important that we see God rightly. You know, oftentimes in this thing we call Christianity, we focus primarily on, on what we do. We focus primarily on behavior. We pick up on a, a few key commands from scripture and we're like, okay, this is what the Christian life is about. The, doing these things, saying these right things, going to these particular places. But really the, the heart of the gospel isn't first and foremost about what we do. It's about seeing God rightly. It's about who we are in him in light of who he is. And it's from that place, you know, other, other verses talk about the fruit of the Lord's work in your life. The byproduct are these things that we do, these things that we say. But first and foremost is how we see God. A.W. Tozer said the most important fact about any man is not what at any given time he may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So transformation that our hearts long for, the transformation that scripture promises us flows out of revelation. It flows out of the revealing of our hearts of what God is truly like. And it's from that place then our behavior begins to change because that's when it actually trickles into our day-to-day life. Otherwise, we're stuck with religion, which just impacts us on Sunday morning because we clean ourselves up and we're like, okay, I gotta look the part, right? I gotta, I gotta act like a Christian supposed to act for those few hours we kinda hold our breath and make our way through it, grit our teeth and get through our church experience. And then Monday hits and we're like, okay, now back to normal, right? I know I'm being too honest. <laughs> but the gospel obliterates that paradigm of Christianity when we see God rightly. And all of a sudden, Monday morning, we, we're still seeing God as holy and set apart and completely powerful and it, it impacts us. It's the scripture calls the fear of the Lord. And it actually begins to impact the way we live Monday through Saturday. So transformation flows from revelation. I've heard it said that the Lord is aiming the arrows of his love at the target of our hearts. And at the bullseye of that heart is our will. He wants our free will surrender to who he is. And so he's revealing himself to us. Just like he's revealing himself to the Arab world, he's revealing himself to you and to me in strength and in power, wooing us with the reality of who he is. So this morning, and this is what Pete, where Peter ends his letter, I want the strength of Jesus to hit you in the bullseye of your heart. That it would bid you, it would summon you, it would call you to surrender all that you are to him, to truly trust him, that he is stronger than any strength that you can put your eyes on in this world. 
His power exceeds any power that our eyes run to in this, on this earth. The strength of this world is very fragile. The strength of this world is, is settled in positions and titles, things that come and go, kind of how we structure ourselves to position ourselves over each other. That's what strength is built in, and it's fleeting. Strength in this world is settled in appearances, like I was talking about earlier with religion. The strength of the, of, the, of the Lord is unshakable, unquestionable. There's nothing that can call it into question. I remember this, this old book that we had to read during grad school called The 48 Laws of Power regarding human power, the way we influence one another by Robert Greene. He calls out these 48 laws of just the way that we influence people, rightly and wrongly. But many of the laws are quite depressing. So here's a few of them. Law six is this, court attention at all cost. Everything is judged by its appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger, more colorful, more mysterious than the bland and timid masses. That's what the power of this world is like. Like just make yourself look as bold and powerful and colorful and mysterious and the people will be wooed by you. Completely opposite of Jesus. He would get down and stoop down with the one because his power was never in question. He'd call the kids to himself and say, step back, all you powerful, important adults. I'm calling the kids to to myself today because his power was unquestionable. Law 20 says this. Law 20 is do not commit to anyone. Do not commit to any side or cause but yourself. By maintaining your independence, you become the master of others, playing people against one another, making them pursue you. That's the power of this world. You stand alone, fight for yourself, make other people serve you. You become master over others. You work the system and exert your power over other people, but never secede any sort of weakness or dependence on other people. Well, Jesus' strength turns that completely on head. He commits himself to a people. He commits himself to you, whether or not they will ever turn to him, whether or not you or I will ever finally surrender our hearts because his strength is unquestionable. It's not dependent on us. His strength stands apart. One more depressing law, Law 26, says keep your hands clean. Sounds like Pilate. Maintain such a spotless appearance by using others as scapegoats to disguise your involvement. So like just make sure you steer clear of any sort of people that will taint your, taint your appearance or taint your reputation. Well, Jesus turns that on head. So I'm not gonna use somebody as a scapegoat, a scapegoat or I don't care if someone uses me as a scapegoat. In fact, I'm gonna become the scapegoat. I'm gonna come on their behalf. I will, I will look like I'm tainted there on the cross. I have no problem. It's a heavy burden to carry, but there's no, it's, I have no problem being look, looked at as a criminal or as the, the, the one who has caused the crime, although I'm innocent. So the strength of the Lord completely stands apart. It's holy. It's a holy strength. So the strength of this world is like, it's like the, the Wizard of Oz, this old man, this old frightened uh, 
insecure man hiding behind the curtain, right? Smoke and mirrors, don't look behind the curtain. The strength of the Lord comes to us. He steps out of the curtain, he comes to us and is revealed in greater strength than what we could ever even imagine. So the strength of Jesus is absolute and unshakable. Let's quickly read Hebrews chapter one to set the stage. Verse three, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus, the son of God. He is not lesser than the father. Jesus himself upholds the universe by the word of his power. His strength is absolute and unquestionable and unshakable. After, the making, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The writer of Hebrews is not saying that in that moment Jesus became superior to the, to the angels as though he wasn't before, as much as he was revealed as superior to the angels, as he always had been. Now it had been established all the earth for all eyes to see that he is superior to all created things. He stands alone. So his strength is absolute. So maybe you're tracking with me in your head. I want this to now pierce your heart. Now maybe you're accepting it theologically. I want it now to pierce that bullseye of your heart so that it calls you to surrender and truly trust him. So let's read this. First Peter chapter five, it says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be, going to be revealed. So he first, or he ends this letter by addressing the, the elders of churches across, across the Roman empire, these ones who had been scattered and churches had been popping up all around the Roman empire because of persecution. And he addresses these elders, not as an apostle or as a authority, a bureaucrat from some office. But instead, he addresses them as a fellow elder. You can, you can sense the humility of Peter in these words. As a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, that just like oozes with humility because think of how Peter observed the sufferings of Christ. Peter was not there at the cross. Peter was there at Caiaphas' house when he was denying Jesus. And that's the sufferings of Christ that Peter saw. So it was like, it was to his own demise that he would even say that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ because he had finally come to the end of himself. He saw the strength of Jesus and was willing to say, I'm, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Jesus himself called out my denial. He said, I would, he predicted that I would deny him three times as I ended up doing, but yet I witnessed his sufferings in the midst of that denial. There was something so intimate about him being a witness of the sufferings of Christ. It was very personal, but now it becomes his testimony, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And Peter saw a glimpse of the glory of God that we would all just love to experience. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw the glorified Christ hanging out with Moses and Elijah. He got a glimpse of the glories to come that our hearts just long to see. And so with great conviction and with great humility, he says that is our hope, a real glory, 
a tangible glory, to see the beauty of God in a greater level. Verse two, it says, shepherd the flock, this is his command, his exhortation, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, so don't do it as a hireling or because anybody's twisting your arm, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. This is what church leadership should look like. Humble servants that are willing to serve. They're not being forced into it. Not, there's not arm twisting going on. There's no compulsion. They're willingly serving the household of God, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So our example in church leadership, our example is the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. And the, 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 the title as shepherd, again, embodies the humility of the Son of God, embodies the humility of our example, Jesus. Shepherds are not, that's not a, um, you know, a vocation that people would be vying for. It's not a position or title of power. Instead, it communicates the heart of a servant, the heart of, of one who's seeking to defend and protect and serve, to lay down his life, to protect those, to put himself in danger for the sake of the ones he serves. That is our example in church leadership. It's the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. So you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So this is the culture of the church. It's a, it's a culture of humility. It's a culture of submission one to another. We're all submitted to some, someone, and we spoke about this in prior verses in First Peter, because this is a theme throughout his letter, is the spirit of humility within the gospel, within the Christian faith. There is, in, the, in, the, in Christianity, there's a strength in submission, because you know your, your strength comes from some other outside source, which is God himself, and it's not from your position in the hierarchy of the world systems. So we've talked about that at length already. So he talks to the younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You do not want to be against God. You don't want God to be against you. None of us want to have enemies. But here it says pride actually creates this enmity with God where God actually opposes you. So that's something we can allow it to sink deep into our hearts. Humility is a fruit of God's work, of the gospel in our, in our lives that is necessary for us to please the Lord. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So verse six, humble yourselves, therefore, and this is the key verse of the entire morning. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that the, at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we humble ourselves, why? Because God himself has revealed himself as mighty, as strong, as sufficient, as one who embodies a strength that's from another world. Because we've had an encounter with the mighty God, the mighty hand of God, we humble ourselves. 
We, li- we willingly place ourselves, submit ourselves under his mighty hand. And it's in that place that he exalts us. It's in that place that he fills us with strength, that he becomes our sufficiency to get us through anything that, that, our, that comes our way. It's from that place that we cast our cares upon him. We cast all our anxieties, the things that weigh us down, the distractions, the things that keep us up at night. We cast those things upon him. Why? Because he's revealed himself as strong. He's revealed himself as mighty, as the one who is full of power, the one who carries unshakable, unquestionable power. That power is actually intimate. He says he cares for you. There's something very personal about the power of Jesus. This is where it begins to pierce your heart. Theologically and on a mind level, yes, he, is, he has unquestionable power, unquestionable strength. And what that means then for you is that that power is sufficient to care for you, to take care of you. As Jesus said, we are not left as orphans. So that orphan spirit that rises up from time to time where you feel insecure, you feel fearful about where your provision's gonna come from. That is of the old you. The gospel speaks a different word over you. That you are now nestled under the goodness and the sufficient power of the mighty hand of God who cares for you. So you willingly, and here's the invitation, this is what is summoning you this morning, is calling you for you to throw your cares before the Lord. He's not saying you won't have anxieties, you won't have cares, but instead now you're given, the door has been opened. You've been given this invitation to throw your cares before the Lord because he is sufficient, because he is the strong one, because his strength is different than the strength that you see in this world. So we humble ourselves because we've caught a glimpse of the mighty God. Remember, transformation flows out of revelation. So we've seen him rightly, not perfectly, not clearly, like 100%. All of eternity, God will be revealing himself to us. We've caught a glimpse of him. In In the least, in the cross, in his willingness to come in power, pursue our hearts in love, to lay down his life for those that he loves. And that ravished our hearts. That called us to come and humble ourselves before him. So transformation flows out of revelation. From that spirit, verse eight, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So live vigilant. Understand that we live in a battle. We are not yet in the 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 full millennial reign of Christ that is our hope in this, this age to come. We are in the age where, where it's actually considered that the Lord has given the enemy a certain authority. They call him the prince of the power of the air or the prince of the power of this age. The enemy has this certain authority to roam around the earth and he's not passive in that. He's seeking to devour your life. He's seeking to devour and destroy me and my wife, we were on a walk last night and she mentioned a story that she had heard down in Florida of somebody stumbling off of a bike path because we were on a walk on a bike path so her mind was sparked. Somebody stumbling off a bike path and falling 
onto an alligator in a, in a body of water in Florida. Of course, the alligator attacked because it was just lying there and someone landed on top of it. So it attacked. This is not that. This is the active seeking out of the enemy for prey. There was recently a story of a mountain lion. I don't know if you guys heard this in in North Story County, like around this area, north of Ames. A mountain lion roaming around. People who live in the country are nodding their heads because it was on their radar. A mountain lion in Iowa. There's no mountains here. It was lost, you know? And the enemy is lost in in our age. He's lost. He's roaming around. But he's seeking for something to devour. This mountain lion is an enemy. And for the people that live out in the country, you know, that they know that the mountain lion is looking for a free lunch. He's looking to take down a cow, and he could. It's, it's, it's roaming the countryside looking to devour something. That's the picture of the enemy. It's not the docile alligator that just, you know, prey comes landing on top of it. No, the enemy is like that mountain lion roaming the countryside looking to devour some innocent prey or not so innocent prey. So we live differently. We, we live like vigilantly wide awake with eyes wide open because we've encountered the power of another one. We've encountered, we've seen with our own eyes the power of God. Therefore, we live with eyes wide open, wide awake. We won't be caught off guard by the attacks of the enemy or the enemy that is seeking to destroy our lives. Instead, we will resist. Every time, we'll resist And Lord always provides us a way out, as Kyle quoted earlier. Verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So be emboldened. Be filled with courage. When you hear these stories from Turkey and Pakistan, from other believers that are walking through trials and tribulations, oftentimes at a much higher cost than any of us will ever see or face, Be emboldened with that reality that we're knit into a story bigger than yourself. When you're overwhelmed by life and you're like, woe is me, my life is so difficult, lift up your eyes and realize that the Lord has knit you together with something so much bigger than yourself. And it's in that that you're emboldened and filled with the courage to stand strong, to resist the enemy. Be firm in your faith. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, The God of a little grace. No, the God of all grace. All grace flows from God. Every good thing flows from God. He is the creator of good. Evil, then, is the absence of that goodness. He is the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is our promise. Yes, in the future age. Yes, in the age to come, but also in the present. That's why he speaks it to us. That's why God has given us this. It is our future hope, a power, a strength, a greater revelation of peace, a greater revelation of the joy of the presence of God in the age to come. But there is a present reality that the gospel has brought when Jesus said the kingdom of God is near. So it's not all future tense. So I believe even in this age, the Lord will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
that means something for your life. The God of all grace is here this morning. The God of all grace, the one who, what, what flows from him, it's called the throne of grace, what flows from the throne of grace is all that, the, the gifts of God, the goodness of God, the sufficiency to make it through today, to be an overcomer, to be victorious over the enemy, to overcome any trial or tribulation. It's with that spirit that he restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. That word restore in the Greek, it's the same word that would be used to, in Mark chapter one, it's used to refer to the mending of the nets, to like repair the nets. That's what the Lord's doing in your life. He's repairing your heart. He's mending your heart. That the language is also used in like a medical term to set a fracture, to set a bone right. I hold this arm because I actually broke this bone when I was in college. I've broken a, a bone in every limb of my body, so I've broken a lot of bones. But I broke this bone, which is called the humerus bone, and it, it, there was nothing that was humorous about it. I broke this bone in, college, or in high school and it started to heal wrong. Like it started to heal at an, at an angle like this. So two weeks in, your, your body is just amazing how quickly it heals itself. And that bone started to calcify back together, but at an angle like that. And so I went to the doctor for like a two week checkup and the doctor shared that bad news with me. And they gave me two ibuprofen, walked out and came back a few minutes later and they said, we're gonna reset that bone. It already been calcifying. It was like the worst pain in my life. In the first couple of weeks, I mean, the first week of that break was horrible too. They can't cast the humerus. So it just sits there in a sling and you're just hoping to not move. So you know, just until it starts to heal. So they had to reset it back to square one. Sometimes walking with the Lord can feel like that. The Holy Spirit and his tenderness and his kindness as, as great physician comes into our life. And there's things that he's wanting to restore. He's wanting to set things right, but that can be uncomfortable. The ripping out of the old man that's conquered by the cross, that the resurrection is giving life to in the new man, and he's setting things right. That word confirm means to make as solid as granite. That's what he's doing in your life. He's making you immovable. The immovable one is making you immovable, fully establishing you, strengthening and establishing you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Then he ends, verse 12, by Silvanus, who we're not 100% sure who these individuals are. Silvanus is the, is the full-length name of the, word, of the name Silas. Silas would be a shorter version of Silvanus. So there's some who assume that Silas was his companion here in this letter. Faithful brother, as I regard, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that it is the true grace of God. Stand, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon which again, they're not sure who, scholars are not sure who she is, very well could be Peter's wife. It says she who's at Babylon. Peter hung out a lot in Rome and Babylon is the nickname in the early church. Um, Babylon is the nickname for Rome in the early church as we see in the book of Revelation. So very, very likely it could be he's, bring, he's sending a greeting from his own wife who's likewise, likewise chosen, sends your greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Again, they don't know if Mark is actually his, the name of his son, which would be kind of cool. Um, or it could be the mark of the gospel of Mark because 
Um, many believe that Peter was the source of much of the gospel of Mark. So uh, a lot of speculation there. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's the end of this epic letter to the church 2,000 years ago. I'm going to ask Scott to come forward to the keys. Even as I spoke these words, these final words of Peter in this letter, I sensed the strength of God being poured out upon hearts. The strength of God that is revealed in his sufferings. His sufferings reveal his strength because he predicted his sufferings. He willingly submitted himself to it for love and he overcame it. So the sufferings of the Lord reveal his strength. We see his strength as shepherd. This one who is completely secure and immovable in his titles. That he'd willingly submit himself even to the title as a shepherd. His strength is established in the foundations of creation. We see his strength in his humility. The greatest is the servant of all, Jesus said. And Jesus himself embodied it and exemplified it. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. We see his strength as the one who cares for us in our intimate needs, as the one who defends us against this enemy who's seeking to devour our lives. We see his strength as the God of all grace, the source of 100% of all grace in the universe flows from the throne of grace himself, from the throne of God. His strength is poured out upon our lives in reality. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.